This weekend, I am celebrating two of the greatest uh, moments in my life, and they happen to be landing on exactly the same day. First one, it was August of 1997 that I preached my very first sermon ever here as senior pastor of Bethel Church. I was 29 years old. Some of you were here then. You may recall. I'm older, and you're really old. Uh, <laughs> And it was my very first sermon, and, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to set the stage, I wanted to set the tone for what my ministry would be, where my ministry would go. I heard somebody this week say, you know, whatever you, in your church, whatever you talk the most about to your people, that's the gospel. And I began with, I decided that I was going to preach a message on the glory and the, 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 the supremacy of Jesus in all things. And so the theme of that, the the title of the message was, it's all about him. Now, over all these years, I can look back on many things that I regret. Many things, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would say it differently. I would treat certain people differently. I would do these things differently. And uh, I, we don't get to do that, but if I could, I would do that. But honestly, if I could go back all those years to August of 1997 and, and do it all over again, I would do it's all about him. I have no regrets whatsoever for setting the stage, setting the tone, and all of these years. Because what happened was, I did that message the very first uh, year, and then a year later, decided, you know what, I'm going to do the same theme, only a different text. And so I preached a different text, and... And did it again and uh, have done it now. And this is the 17th It's All About Him message. I can't believe it's been that long, but truly it has. And over all of these years, it's provided an opportunity to just keep putting before our congregation and hopefully before you, my dear brother or sister, what this whole thing is really all about. And that is... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second celebration is that today is my very first wedding anniversary. Today, August 25th. Can hardly believe that as well. You know, I waited so long to get married, and, and over all those years, I had the, you know, the opportunity to uh, see you, many of you, not everybody, but many of you celebrating your anniversaries. And so I would, oh, congratulations on your five and congratulations on your 10 and 25. And some of you even 50 years and, and, uh, you know, for participating in wedding vow renewal ceremonies where there I am and the couple's doing it. And do you do it? Say I do again. And do you say I do again? And all of that, all these years of, Seeing many of you have your little parties and your little celebrations, now it's my turn, and I am so excited about that. So uh, we are we are uh, going to be celebrating after we get these services out of the way, um, and so in a way you could say that uh, this is it's all about him weekend. But once the service is done, it's all about her. So that's. The day that I have in front of me, and I am rather excited about that, might make for a shorter sermon. We'll see. 
Now, these two celebrations, it's all about him. And my uh, first wedding uh, anniversary actually have a lot of theological uh, connection. There is a lot of overlap between the centrality and the glory of Jesus and my one-year anniversary. You might come up to ask me, and probably nobody would, but let's say that you didn't have any couth about you. You might uh, come up to me and you might say, Steve, after one year of marriage, what do you think of Jennifer? Nobody would ask that, would you? But let's just say that you did. You know what I would say to you? I would say she is more beautiful to me today than August 25th, 2012. Now, if you really had no couth, you might say something like, really? Because most people would say the most beautiful day that they have is actually their, their wedding day. I mean, that's the day when the beautiful dress and the tux and the hair is perfect and the makeup is exactly right and all the things and the flowers and all. It's, I mean, that's... That's like, that's the most beautiful day. I mean, that's when everything is just as good as it can be. I mean, for most couples, it's pretty much downhill from there. So why would you, why would you say, and how could you say that she's more beautiful to you today than she was a year ago? And the answer to that is a year ago, I had not had the experiences with her that I have had this year. This year, I've watched her transition to Northwest Indiana from Kansas City. New town, new friends, new life. The small task of being the senior pastor's wife at Bethel Church, for goodness sakes. I mean, if we don't have mercy for that woman, for that alone. I've watched her do that. I've seen her love me in spite of many bewildering experiences in ministry. I have watched her love others, and I've seen her walk into countless rooms. If you know my wife, she's got this huge effervescent smile, and I've seen her light up the room over and over again. I've seen her work behind the scenes in our home to try to make it a little refuge for us where we can just be us, a safe place. I admired her as we discovered our pregnancy and watched her as she experienced a very sickly pregnancy, more than most realize, and she struggled to be the senior pastor's wife, hello, and inside being, bleh. I've watched her do that with grace. I will never forget watching her birth our daughter just two and a half months ago. I mean... You women are amazing. I'm just saying that. And my wife is amazing. To What it takes, the grit and determination to bring a child into this world, wow. I admire her for that. So over this year, she has held me, she has prayed for me, and she has loved me with a kind of wifely love that when we stood actually right here on this stage one year ago, almost exactly right now, I had no idea that she had those capacities. I knew her in a way, but now I know her in so many more ways. And because I know her in so many more ways, there are so many more beauties that I can admire in her and praise her for and be thankful to God that he has given her to me. 
So I can say today that Jennifer is more beautiful to me today than she was a year ago. Are you saying she wasn't really that beautiful to you a year ago? That's not what I'm saying. She was ravishingly beautiful a year ago. But now I see with depth. Now I see in the complexities of personhood and womanhood the beauty that is my wife. And the same thing is true as we place our gaze upon Jesus. There is a way that we can look at Jesus, and much of the world looks at Jesus in a kind of superficial way, where they admire him, he was a moral teacher, he was a, did some really incredible things, you know, he founded one of the major religions of the world, and, you know, there's a certain kind of uh, casual admiration that the entire world has for Jesus. They acknowledge him as being, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the great men who ever lived, But there is a huge difference between seeing him superficially and seeing him as the glorious and supreme and beautiful Son of God and Savior of the world. To know him in depth and to know him in uh, in more fullness is to give to us more and more reasons to revere him and admire him and praise him as we see in the complexities of the God-man Jesus, true, divine, eternal beauty and glory. And that is the subject of All About Him 17. And as many of you know, this is a personal passion of mine, uh, but it has never been the subject of an All About Him message. The beauty of Christ Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and as you turn there, let me give you quickly the context here. Paul is developing this this metaphor that he draws out of the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 24 tells the story of Moses, who was God's anointed leader of Israel out of Egypt, and after they went through the Red Sea, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, and they go to the top of Mount Sinai. Not they. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai. And there God gives him the law, the law of God. And Moses spends those days on that mountaintop in a unique uh, experience of the presence of God. And the text says that when he came down from that mountain, there was a residual glory that his face uh, shined with. A brilliance that came off of his face. It was so bright that the Israelites were like, Moses, can you cover that up? Can you put a veil on that face? Because it's so bright, we can't even look at you. And so that's what Moses did. He put a veil over his face to hide the glory of God. Now what Paul does here is he develops this metaphor, and uh, he does so beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3, where... He says that, uh, that there is a veil that unbelievers have as well. Only the veil that he's talking about here is the veil that unbelievers have over their, over their hearts so that they can't see the glory of Jesus. And I pick up now reading verse 3 of chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now my outline is very simple for this text. How we see the glory of Christ. And when we see the glory of Christ, what are we actually seeing? What does that mean? Okay, so with that, we see here that Paul, Paul's point is that unbelievers can't see the glory of Jesus. Now, they can hear about him, they can read a historical account about him, they can visit a church, they can do religious things, but they can't actually see the glory of God because there is a veil, a veil of unbelief over their hearts. Like Moses had a veil over his face so that people couldn't see the glory of God, unbelievers have a veil over their hearts so that they can't see the glory of Jesus. They don't get it. They can't see it. And by the way, they can't like we couldn't at a time in our life, right? So don't hear this in any way being like, hey, look at us. We're so brilliant. We can see it. No. We could. The only way that we see it is because God helps us to see it. We'll get into that in, in a second. But unbelievers can't see the glory of Jesus. And that is why in our culture, when people say the name Jesus, what do they normally mean by that? That's a curse word, isn't it? And they'll even add his messianic title, Jesus Christ. And they do not mean it with honor. They don't mean it with worship. They mean it uh, to display their anger and their, their, their uh, disappointment or whatever it is. And they say the name of the glorious Son of God as a curse word. Imagine the world that we live in. You want to talk about being blind to the glory of God? When you take Jesus' name and use it as profanity, you are really blind to who he is. It's profanity in the world around us. It also is, uh, it's, 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 it's somewhat mocked. I mean, think of how many people that there are that would see people that believe Jesus is God, Savior of the world, and they would see us as being small-minded or somehow unintellectual. These are the people that as you drive to church, they see and they know where you're going and they just are, you know, they're raking their leaves and they shake their heads. Those small-minded people can't imagine that they would go and spend their morning, a good day off morning at church about Jesus, right? I think of the, uh, a recent presidential debate when one of the candidates for president of the United States, when asked who his hero was, made the mistake of saying it was Jesus. And if you remember the mockery and the talk shows and all the things that came out of him saying his hero was Jesus, lots of laughter about that. That is the world that we live in. And why is the world that way? Paul says they're that way because they have a veil. The God of this world, this is the enemy of God, Satan, works very hard to keep that veil in place lest they see who he actually is. Now, verse 6 tells us how spiritually blind people are made to see. 
Notice, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now he's referring to a time when God said something about light. And I hope that you think in your mind back to Genesis 1. Oh yes, indeed. In the creation account, when God made the world, what did he say? He said, let there be light. And suddenly there was there was light. Paul refers to that moment and says, just like the God who said, let there be light, produce light. What he does in the human heart is, in a way he says, let there be light. This is the sovereign act, the sovereign grace of God through the gospel, by the spirit, in the human heart, where essentially God turns the lights on. Like when you go into a room, it's dark, and, and you don't know what's in there. You turn the lights on, and suddenly you see things that were always there, but you couldn't perceive them. Now you see them. Now you see them for what they are. Or if somebody's there, suddenly there's somebody, oh, I didn't even know that you were here. I'm so sorry. The room was dark. When I can't see, I can't perceive. And so God turns the lights on, and in the turning of the lights on, now... Somebody who prior to this used Jesus' name as a curse word, laughed at people that followed Jesus, suddenly now realize and perceive in the person of Jesus a glory that up to that point they did not realize. Suddenly now there's a glory and it, he draws their hearts to believe and to follow and to treasure and to worship. Christ. God turns the lights on and the blind can suddenly see. So that's how we see the glory of God. It's something that God does through the gospel. But when we see him, what are we actually seeing? And this is the rest of the message. What, what are we perceiving actually? Look at verse four. He, he says what unbelievers are missing to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, now after salvation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where is that glory seen? In the face of Jesus Christ. So God turns the lights on, and by his sovereign grace, we now perceive something about Jesus that we do not see in any uh, world conqueror, philosopher, religious leader, hero in some way. There's something about Jesus that separates him from Alexander the Great and Socrates and Einstein and your favorite sports figure or whatever it is. These people, they like... Suddenly he rises in the man. You're like, there is something absolutely unique about him. I'm seeing some, I'm perceiving something so different. And notice it says, seeing Jesus' face, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that is, that's metaphor. I've never seen the actual face of Jesus Nobody here has ever actually seen the face of Jesus. What Paul is getting at is what we know 
That is that to, to know somebody by face is to know them, is to know them, right? Is to know them. It's, it's, it's like this, uh, school started for most schools, I think, this past week. And no doubt in the next couple of weeks, one of the things they always do at the beginning of the school year is they take school pictures, the dreaded school pictures. I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, I'd had braces for two and a half years. And my orthodontist said, hey, I think next month they're coming off. And I went home. I was so excited just to get my braces off. But I was so excited on top of that because shortly after that would be the yearbook pictures. And I thought, my sophomore year, I'm going to be clean. I'm going to be studly. I'm going to look good for all of time in in my 10th grade sophomore yearbook. And so I remember I went to my last appointment ready to get him off. And he took a look. He took a look. And he said, well, I think we're going to have to give it another month probably. And I was like, no. I'm going to be brace face in the yearbook. I don't want that. And so I just throw that story in as an example of how to know somebody's face. I mean, they don't take pictures of the student's elbow or knee or some. They, it's the face. Because I, I rec- it's facial recognition. To know their face is to know, is to know the person. And what Paul is saying here is that the glory of God, I am perceiving when the lights go on, I am perceiving something about Jesus. I am seeing in him the glory of God in the face, in the person of Jesus. I recognize him for who he actually is. He is the glory of God. So glory is what we spiritually see. Beauty is what we perceive. Okay? Glory is what we see. Majesty, awe, wonder. Beauty is what we perceive in his person and in his work. Beauty is that thing in our hearts. It connects with our soul. Beautiful things do. And spiritually, there is a beauty in Jesus that draws our hearts toward him. He is our beautiful savior. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean it has nothing to do with his physical appearance. First of all, Isaiah prophesied there would be nothing about him that would draw us to him. Uh, if if we could go back in time and you were there in the streets of Capernaum or Nazareth and Jesus came walking down the street, you wouldn't go, "It's Jesus." How do you know that? Look at the white flowing gown. And he's got model good looks about him. You know, square jaw, little cleft right here, little scruff. That's what Jesus looks like. He's he's so good looking. Actually, there was nothing about Jesus in his physical appearance that set him out as being the Messiah. He looked like everybody else. But there was something about him in the depth of his person. There was a quality about him that once he began his public ministry, drew thousands and thousands and thousands of people to him. The power of his words, the power of his miracles, the the sense of authority that he had as he spoke. There was something unique about this Jesus. He was beautiful. In what ways? How is Jesus our beautiful Savior? It's a long list. I'm not doing all of them. I don't even know all of them. I'm a work in progress in understanding the beauty of Christ. But here are some of the big ones. He is beautiful as the perfect image 
of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know, we human beings, Genesis 1 tells us that we, we have distinction in this world in that we are made in the image of God. We have a spiritual nature. We have a mind. We have intellect. We are personal. We're relational. We're communicative. We have things that are different and that give us intrinsic worth from any animal, any plant, anything else in this world. We are made in the image of God. We're little pictures of what God is actually like. But Jesus is not in the image of God. He is the image of God. Of God. And there is a massive difference between being a picture of something and being the something itself. There's a huge difference between a picture of the Grand Canyon and the Grand Canyon. The picture's on a piece of paper. Oh, look, it's a picture of the Grand Canyon. Can anybody do that with the actual Grand Canyon? No, I don't think so. To stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon is to be, is to be in awe of the size and the scope and the amazing sort of deserty beauty of that place. It's massive. The picture is pretty. But the reality is awe-inspiring. Jesus is not in the image of God. He is the image of God. He is indeed God himself, the God-man. Son of God, Son of Man. We're the pictures. Jesus is the reality. God in flesh. He is beautiful, beautiful as God, perfectly intertwined with human nature and a human body. He is the God man. Secondly, He is beautiful as the beauty of which all other beauties speak. He is beautiful as the beauty behind and for which all other beauties and pleasures that are holy and good speak. We live in a stunningly beautiful world, don't we? Okay. This is a beautiful world. We put up pictures earlier in the service just to kind of stoke those aesthetic enjoyments as we see so many beautiful things. We experience so many wonderful things, so many uh, pleasurable things in this world. It is, a, it is a very beautiful world that we live in. There is even beautiful art that men uh, have created. Think of, I think it's the most famous painting in the whole world, the Mona Lisa. Estimated value over a billion dollars for one painting. Da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa. What is the Mona Lisa actually a real tribute to? Is it a tribute to a woman with a smirk on her face? No, it's a tribute to the absolute brilliance of Leonardo da Vinci. And what about the Messiah? Uh, I mean, by that, I mean the... uh, the, the symphony, the, the, the music, the, the Messiah. Now, that's a really beautiful uh, thing. It's considered perhaps one of the most beautiful ever written. But what is it really a tribute to? Is it a tribute to the amazing violinist or the drum, drums or the conductor? No. It is a tribute to the wonder and the glory and the complexity and the brilliance of Handel to have in his soul such beautiful music that pours forth. So you have the beauty, but there is something or someone behind the beauty that is actually a tribute to. 
The Bible says, and this is, this is so fantastic. The Bible says that this entire universe is a tribute to God. That God is the beauty behind all of this beauty. And we look in the world and we see this amazingly wonderful beauty. What is it all about? Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay, what has he shown? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What did God do when he made this whole universe? He took the invisible spiritual qualities that are his as the eternal God. And in the mystery that only God can do, made a physical world as an expression of the attributes that he himself has. Now only God could do this. But we live in this world that is the expression of what God is like. And what do we see when we look around this world? We see beauty everywhere, don't we? Beauty is everywhere. The whole earth, Isaiah 6, 3, is full of his glory. So the purpose behind which God made the universe was to make a massive, physical, tangible, atoms and molecule type expression of what he is like. So we look at this world and we see stunning beauty, complexity, symmetry everywhere. And all of that is saying something about the amazing beauty, complexity, symmetry of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, so I think it's right to say that God is the beauty behind all beauty. But the Bible goes on to say that actually, specifically... This universe is saying something about the second person of the Trinity, the Son. You say, well, where does it say that? Colossians 1, we read uh, part of it earlier. This long list of the things that God has done, uh, the things about Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, by him, through him, all things were made, all of that. You get down to verse 18, and there's a purpose statement for everything that has been done, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, or so that in everything he might be preeminent. All of that, all that God has done, this whole storyline, everything is so that Christ might be exalted and might be praised. Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Why is all of this here? It is so that for him, by the way, is Jesus So that everything might be towards him, towards unveiling the glory of who Jesus is. As many of you know, this is a particular passion of mine to help God's people realize why the sunrise is so wonderful and why the coffee tastes so good and 
why you love going to Lake Michigan or you love to watch the stars or you, why do we have, we have all of these aesthetic experience. Why you put the, pick the colors that you did for your outfit. Some go together, some don't. Some of you are good at it. Some of you are not. Uh, <laughs> that's why most of us men get married is just so we can get good at that. Uh, and in other words, it's everywhere, Right? It's everywhere. It's down at the atomic level. All this amazing mathematical precision on the atomic level, it's true in the galaxies. As solar systems and, and, uh, and, the, and the planets and the star, everything all doing its thing. It's so massive. It's so brilliant. It's so fantastic. It's so wonderful. Why is it that? Scientism wants to say it's because of chance. The Bible says it's to say something about God, specifically Jesus. And God's people then are called to live in this beautiful world and to experience and see and hear and taste and touch these things for what God intended them to be. And that is Christ-centered, aesthetic worship moments. So if these things are so stunningly beautiful and they are just the symphony the painting the sculpture the little picture and yet we love him so much and jesus is the massive beauty behind the little thing that we love so much what must he be like And to see then with hearts unveiled through the picture to the glorious reality is a privilege that God's people have. The world doesn't see it, right? The world doesn't see it. They can't. In fact, the little thing can seem big to us until we see the big thing, the little picture. Like if all you've ever seen is Mount Baldy, You could say that's, boy, mountains are huge. Mount Baldy. Until you take a little ride through the Rockies. And then all of a sudden you're like, Mount Baldy? Why do they call it Mount Baldy? Now that's a mountain, right? Once you've seen the big thing, the little thing doesn't seem as big as it used to. You know, the moon has amazing light. That is a bright, boy, look at that big sphere in the sky. It's really bright. Amazingly bright wonderfully bright until you see the sun and once you see the sun you're like moon's not so bright because that's really that's really really bright cedar lake's big that is a lot of water i could go and just sit next to that big thing of water and just look at it and be in awe of Cedar Lake until I go to an ocean and I stand at the edge of the Pacific Ocean. When I go back to Cedar Lake, I'm like, it's not so big. I can still enjoy it, but I'm not going to worship it. I'm not going to live for it. Why? Because I've seen an ocean. And in the world that has only seen the little pictures, they think they're big They think it's what it's all about. So that in the world, they live for the lake house. And they live for the aesthetic experience of the concert. 
And they can't wait for the NFL season to begin because it's so massive. It's so fantastic. It's ah, Because that's all they got. And it's a little picture. But we, with hearts unveiled, have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We have seen the ocean. We have seen the sun. We love him. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. How I long for our church. For the Bethelonians to be Christ-savoring theologians who maximize their joy and gladness in all the wonderful little pictures that he has so graciously given to us in this world, but we enjoy them for his sake. And we use them as opportunities to worship him. He is the beauty behind all beauty. Next, he is beautiful as the full expression of divine perfection. That may sound a little strange. Let me say it again. He is beautiful as the full expression of divine perfection. If we want to know what God is like, we can look at Jesus. And everything that's true of Jesus is true of God. He is the perfect image of God. And so what we know about Jesus, we know about God. What do we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Again, this is only a partial list. We see in him, first of all, compassion for the brokenhearted, compassion for the pain of the human experience. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do we find Jesus doing over and over and over again? He is doing the unexpected thing, isn't he? He's not going to the people that you would expect him to go to. He is going to the people that you wouldn't expect him to go to. And so he has a heart. He hears the cry of the blind man, son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody else walked by. He went to him and he healed him. All the people there at the pool of Bethesda, and yet there's a lame man that Jesus has a heart for. He goes and he heals him. He hears the heart cry of the widow whose son had died. Jesus happens to be there. There goes the procession. His heart goes to the widow. He goes and he heals her. He raises the boy from the dead, actually. You ever realize Jesus ruined every funeral he ever went to? (laughs) Kept raising the people from the dead. Why? Because he heard the tears and the heart cries of the brokenhearted. 5,000 people are hungry. He feeds them. Lazarus is dead in the grave. He raises him from the dead. The blind man can't see. He gives, him, he gives sight to the blind. And in each case, he says, this is something about me. So for the blind man, he says, I am the light of the world. For the 5,000, he says, I am the bread of life. And for Lazarus dead in the grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Over and over, love and compassion for the, for the prostitutes and for the, 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 the marginalized in society. You might be here today and wonder, is there any compassion that this beautiful son of God has for me? Look at his life and realize the heart and the care that he has for us. He is not a distant savior who has not, no sympathy for us. No, he is acquainted with our sympathies, Hebrews says, and is a faithful high priest. He cares for you, my dear friend. 
He cares for the sorrows of your heart. And so does God. Because Jesus is the the perfect reflection of him. We see in Jesus mercy for the humble of heart. What a wonderful reality it is to realize that Jesus is not simply distant. He is not harsh. He has a heart for us. He he didn't show mercy to everybody, though, did he? You say, oh, people do that. Oh, he shows mercy to everybody. No, he doesn't. He didn't show mercy to Pilate. He didn't show mercy to Herod. He didn't show mercy to Judas, saying it would be better if you weren't born. He certainly doesn't show mercy to Satan. There is a condition for those to receive mercy from the hand of Almighty God through Jesus, and that is that we must humble ourselves. Here is a beautiful statement. Christians have treasured this down through the centuries. Matthew 12, 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Two very beautiful pictures of the weakest thing that we could see. A little reed and the wick, just just as it's smoldering. You ever touch one of those? They break off right away, don't they? So delicate, so fragile. When the human heart, in that fragility... And with a a, a contrition in our hearts turns to Jesus, he comes, he will not break. He gives us mercy. And preeminently, we cannot talk about the beauty of Christ and not talk about the cross. The cross stands as the ultimate statement of divine beauty. Now that is a strange statement to make. A cross is the place of ultimate beauty. The most beautiful moment in all of the world was a Roman execution. The cross to this day is viewed as the most gruesome death that mankind has ever uh, developed. It is bloody. It is atrocious. It is disgusting. I mean, 2,000 years ago, if you said someday people are going to wear crosses on their necks as jewelry, the Romans would be like, ugh, what? What? We don't even like to think about that. Have you ever seen somebody die on a cross? Nobody would ever wear a cross as jewelry. A horrific death. And there the Bible says that this Jesus, this beautiful, this beautiful God-man, on that cross, bore the guilt of our sins in his conscience, upon his soul, Your sin, my sin, all of our sins, he bore on that cross and willingly gave his life. Why did he do it? The Bible says that he did it as a ransom payment to redeem us from our sins and to make a way for our sins to be forgiven. It is the ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice that has ever been made. Jesus did that for us. And so we look at the cross, and yes, it was gruesome and bloody and horrific and disgusting, but it was also at the same time the biggest expression of divine love as Jesus basically treats us in the same way and the same love that he had for the Father. He extends that to humanity and says, I love you this much. I die for you. The cross is a beautiful, the ultimate beauty. In fact, all other beauties are a reflection of it. We could go on to talk about his power, his wisdom, his healing, his justice, 
his courage, his mediatorial work, his servant nature, his humility, his self-control, his joy, and his role and perfection as prophet, priest, and king. But can we marvel on this All About Him weekend at the glorious, stunningly wonderful, beautiful person that is Jesus our Savior? In your heart right now as I talk about this, is this stirring and stoking passion and love for your Savior? That is the goal here. In fact, that's the last point. As we talk about the beauty of Jesus, he is beautiful as the ultimate satisfaction for all the longings of our hearts. And that's what I want to do again this 17th time here annually to place before our congregation and to before not everybody, you specifically in your life and to say, what are you living for? Who are you living for? What is your ultimate Are you living for the little picture? Is your life all about the little thing? Or have you seen the ocean? Have you seen the sun? And are you realizing what the whole thing is actually all about? And in our church, here we are kicking off all these ministries and the school year is starting and so many things that are getting going. Why, Why do we pray? And why do we have small groups and What's the point of these gatherings week in and week out? And why, why do we have missionaries? Abraham Thomas with us next weekend. Why, why are we supporting Abraham Thomas in India? What about our salt and light and our community outreach? Why, why do we care about what's going on in, in, in Southwest Lake County? And why do we care about what's going on in the north of this county and why should we have a care and concern for the neighbor next to us what's the point of of all of that and to all of that we say the same thing this whole thing it's not about us your life is not about you my friend and when you live that way you're miserable your life by god's design in the cosmic massive scope of what god's plan is is to be lived to the glory of Christ. It is not about you. It is about him. And the church, the vision for the church is what kind of church can we be when you have a congregation that isn't all about themselves, but is primarily as best we can. And we do this imperfectly. I pastor this way very imperfectly, but we're trying to be a church That doesn't just do sort of the platitude lip service. Oh, yes, Jesus, yes, yes, it's all about him. But actually in our hearts, sees him as our ultimate. See his glory. See the beauty of Jesus. And that we treasure him and long for him and love him more and more. Would that like, like me with my wife. One year later, would that one year from now in your heart, there is greater love for Jesus than you have today because you have come to see him in other dimensions. You've come like a, like a diamond. You've seen him in other facets and everywhere you look in that diamond, there is beauty and more reason for you not to live for yourself or think it's about you. More reason to realize this whole thing is about Christ. Amen. I came across a quote. I love this quote. Samuel Rutherford. 
He said this, but the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden in one, put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all loveliness, all sweetness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. I love that quote. Indeed, can we be a church that sees that he is fairest, Lord Jesus, that he is the ultimate, that he is the beauty that our hearts and souls long for, made for, And that in him, when we have him and find him by faith, believing and trusting in him as Savior and Son of God, believing in his resurrection, believing that he's coming again, the whole story of Christ's redemption, as I I discover him and the lights of my heart go on and I see him for who he is, my soul, which has so many longings and desires, finds its rest in Christ. I have found the one that my soul longs for. And his name is Jesus. Oh, that we would be a congregation that sees him that way. That all the petty little things and all the little divisive things and all the things that could otherwise trip us up and make church clunky are all wiped away because of the burning passion we share for the glory and the beauty of God as seen in the face of of Jesus, to whom be all glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. I'm going to lead us in prayer.